the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Air Vice Marshal Dave Rogers, AM, has had a very challenging, broad and interesting Air Force career, cadet under officer to becoming Deputy Chief of the Air Staff. In between these two events, he had many different adventures, from flying sabres on operational missions during confrontation with Indonesia, serving in Ubon, Thailand, as part of Australia's contribution to CETO and also Vietnam instructing on vampires in Perth, completing the first F-111 training in the USA, converting to the F-4E Phantom and flying the delivery flight from St. Louis to Amberley, commanding officer of 6th Squadron on the F-111 and the newly modified RF-111 reconnaissance version, ejecting from the F-111 near Auckland in New Zealand, going back to the USA as the Hornet Project Manager in Washington, D.C. And in 1994, his final appointments were on promotion to Air Vice Marshal, being appointed as Deputy Chief Air Staff and Assistant Chief of the Defence Force Development until he retired in July 1998. Since then, Dave has served as patron of the Pathfinders, 30 Squadron Bowfighters, a five-year term as the Chairman of the Air Force Cadets National Council and other organisations. He's currently enmeshed in the historic car movement in the ACT. Well, Air Vice Marshal Dave Rogers AM retired. Do you like retirement? Very much so. Why? Well, I can do all those things that I had uh, not been able to do while I was in the service. Okay, all right. So you don't have any attachment mentally or physically to anything to do with flying in no, the, these no, days? No, No, I gave up flying as soon as I left the Air Force. I, I, uh, it was based on the fact that when I went down to fly an aeroplane in the Air Force, I knew it was well-maintained, I knew it was well-serviced, and I could trust the people there. I went down and flew at the Aero Club whilst I was still in the service, and sometimes you'd get in there and you'd find dirt on the seats and not properly serviced, and it just uh, undermined my faith in uh, the Air Force servicing. So I thought, no, get it out of the uh, system and go into that old car restoration. So You just sort of there hinted at Royal Air Force crew, Royal Australian Air Force crew, in your career from day one to the day you left, what is the importance of a crew within an, around an aeroplane? Not just the pilot, but the whole crew. How important is that? Very much. It comes back to training and also um, exposure to everything. I, I give you an example. I did a tour of CO base squadron at, at Richmond many years ago, and that opened my eyes on how the Air Force works. Not just the air crew, not just the servicing people, but everybody behind the scenes. And that reinforced my, my love and my admiration for the guys who work on the aeroplanes. Because I knew the training was good and I knew I could place all my faith in them. Mm. So when you sat in the cockpit, you knew that plane was 150% okay? Yeah, I was confident that everything would work. 
Yeah, you'd go through the books and say, oh, well, this course, particular thing here, but no, from a confidence point of view, yes, 100%. I've got to really, I suppose, ask, and I ask everybody pretty much the same question, why did you join the Air Force? Well, um, I was at, at school and I joined the Air Training Corps at th- ATC, 13, yeah. Yeah. and I lived under the flight path of 07 at Mascot, and my uncle used to be a nav in the Air Force on both fighters, and I think he instilled, because he's more like a big brother to me, he instilled that sort of uh, Air Force ethos into me in the, in the late 40s and early 50s. And uh, I just had a love of flying. So when I joined the Air Training Corps, it was that, and I did all right there. I got the cadet under officer. I won a flying scholarship, and I had my fly, uh, full private licence at 16, which DCA screwed up because they didn't re- <laughs> read my birth date. <laughs> <laughs> so... When you were at school and you were in the ATC, did, in your reading, did you also have things like Biggles in the in the background, or was oh, Biggles I, never part of your reading? No. no, I think he was. I think every every young kid about my age at that stage, Biggles was a little bit of a hero. Yeah. And um, but I used to read a lot about flying around, especially around the Second World War and the fighter flying and things like that. And it sort of just was what I wanted to do. I had no intentions of going to, to university or being an academic or anything like that or um, being a tradesman. I just wanted to fly. So how have you found or how did you find the training given to you in those early days by the people above you? Really good. Um, in the Air Force, it was first class and I look back on that now and I don't think he can beat it, even today. Um, it was very demanding. Uh, on both the flying side, the academic side, and also the ground training side. And I mean the ground training, as Pete Ring will tell you, pounding around the uh, the parade ground with Corporal Parry as the learning instructor, that's still stuck in my mind. But that, that instilled a certain amount of regimen and discipline in you, such that when you came up to do a test or an exam, you knew you had to put everything into it. Is that discipline in the upper echelons of what is necessary for any person in, the, in a service of any kind, particularly in the RWF? I think so, and I think it's also the same in business and in, in other life as well. If you have a certain amount of personal discipline that's instilled in you, um, you'll succeed in what you ever want to do. Mm. Your early days in training, before we actually get into any overseas event, just take us through what that was like and what you had to go through. Well, the Point Cook side was very good. You had 16 weeks on the ground doing all the drill phase and the Air Force introduction and processes and protocols and things like that. And then you got into the allied subjects like aerodynamics and weather and mechanics and mathematics. Um, And they they were very interesting. I'd never been very good at maths, but it was the only exam I got under in my life. (laughs) And... um, and then you got into the flying side, and at Point Cook was around about 10 months, included 115 mm. hours in the wind And I found that very good. I had a fellow named uh, Brian McCabe as my instructor, and uh, he was an old Canberra pilot, but he taught me a lot. I taught him how to do stall turns, actually. <laughs> not, not from an overconfident point of view, but I, I just had found a bit of a niche at aerobatics, and I used to like that. So what was the first plane you were in solo? Uh, the first one I ever did was a chipmunk back in 1959. Yeah. By yourself? Yeah, yeah. And what was that like? Oh, I was only 15 at the time. It was good fun. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable to, to, to be so talented in the air for someone so young. I mean, it's 
Well, Very impressive. I, I think in those days you could do it. I don't think sometimes you can do it now because the ages have crept up, A, for um, not so much the entry to the Air Force, but even for licensing and things like that, they, they've crept up. Sure. So what year was it when you finally graduated as fully-fledged pilot? 1963. 63. Yeah. And that's just ahead or just behind the commencement of the Indonesian confrontation? Yes, it was pretty much like it. Uh, very similar date because around there, I think the year before in September 62, Malaysia had um, gone alone yep. and created Malaysia and the whole um, set up there with Singapore and Borneo and mm. things like that. And when I graduated, I went to, to Williamtown and then six months later I was up in Butterworth. As a fighter pilot? Yeah. yeah. Flying what? Sabres. Sabres. Mm. So the confrontation itself, can you remember what the briefing was like before you actually left Australian waters and landed in Malaysia, in Butterworth rather? Yes, I was looking forward to a first-class Qantas flight up to, up via Singapore, and I got a notice the night before saying you're going to you pilot officer Rogers is going to be oh I see the charter with all the screaming kids. So, <laughs> so that was my introduction. But no, um, it was good. I Sabre ACU in, in times of that I I enjoyed it. We had a thing called the Supersonic Teenagers Club at that stage. You had to fly a fighter aeroplane while still as teenager. But when I got to Butterworth. The, You're only uh, 20. I was I only believe. 19. 19? Yeah. Wow. I got the Butterworth, I'd just turned 20, and the CO was a Wing Commander Cannon. He was a nice chap, Second World War pilot, fairly highly decorated, and he welcomed me to the squadron. He said, go and see the flight commander, and I went and saw the flight commander. I won't mention his name. And he said, oh, where did you come from, Rogers? And I said, oh, well, I came from OCU, sir. Oh, we don't like getting new pilots from OCU here. Brings the standard down. And I thought, well, welcome to 77 Squad. But fortunately, he went home to Australia a month later. <laughs> oh, well, then you had a good time. <laughs> I had a good time. Overseas. So what do you recall about an Australian in the Royal Australian Air Force in an area that has been dedicated as a war zone, the Indonesian confrontation? What was that like? Well, it was interesting because um, apart from the normal squadron flying training program where we used to do gunnery, bombing, mm -hmm. dive bombing and rocketry, etc. up at the island, we do completely the air-to-air manoeuvring and things like that. We also had to pull alert on the end of the runway at Butterworth, which means uh, 12 hours a day from 6 in the morning till 6 at night. You'd have to do that every two weeks. We do it during the day, and the uh, the RAF javelins used to do it during the night. And you'd get scrambles. We we're on alert 15, and sometimes brought up to five, sometimes brought up to two. And you'd get some scrambles on some radar things out to the west of Penang. But uh, so there was never any moment in that whole period where you actually saw an enemy. No, not me. No, I. You saw a, a dot on the uh, that. Well, you would. You were told the radar people saw something, but no, no, we didn't do it from an alert part of it. Some from, guys did. From your memory as a pilot in a Sabre, how effective would you say the Sabre was in that period of history? I think it came back to the training of the pilots. Um, the aircraft certainly had its limitations. We had Sidewinder missiles on it, which had only been on the aeroplane for around about three years at that stage, plus the gun. They were the only sort of air-to-air -air type weapons that we had. Um, there was no strike program for the fighter people. There was for the Canberra squadrons, but we were just basically air defence of Malaysia. Um, 
it, it, it was interesting in that the raid, the, it was a day fighter, but at times we had to do patrols out to the west of Penang Island. You'd launch at Sparrows in the morning when it was dark and you'd go and do this thing called Franciscans. Two pairs would take off, two would go to the north of Penang out the west because the radar couldn't see behind Sure, it. sure. And uh, at 500 feet in the dark and you had to make sure you didn't run into the other guy <laughs> trying to keep your eyes open for this uh, fictitious people which didn't appear. But strangely enough, years later, one of the guys in the squadron, a fellow named John Williams, who's still alive, trained the Malaysian people, uh, sorry, the Indonesian pilots to whom Australia gifted the Sabres. And he said, we wouldn't have had any problems because at that stage they weren't very good. I don't want to make a comparison between the Sabre and today's aircraft, but would I be right in assuming that a pilot in a Sabre, as distinct from a pilot today in an F-35, whatever, is more reliant on the skill as the pilot in terms of visual awareness of what's going on around you and as a fighter pilot, because the, t the planes today can... Uh, attack an enemy 300, 400 kilometres away where you actually see the other enemy face to face, if that had ever happened. No, you're dead right. And there's two other aspects of it. Uh, in the aircraft today, everything's, well, I'd say, he's a manager of the system. And with the flight controls, the, <clears throat> the actual flight control computers turn the aeroplane. You just put the inputs and it says, hey, I'll, I can't give you that, but I'll give you this. Whereas the Sabre yeah. had to fly it manually. And you really had to be very careful not to stall it at high altitude, take it right to the bus, get the maximum turnout. There was a lot more of the, the, the hand skills and the flying involved in it. Plus, it was very basic. And was that skill of value to you as you progressed through the planes, as your career progressed? Yeah, very much so. In what way? Very much so, because you had that sixth sense about uh, flying the aeroplane. In other words, I've flown the Phantoms and the F-111s and things like that. They, they had systems in there which you could, you could manipulate and uh, the flight controls, but you had that sixth sense to say, look, I'm not going to pull it this hard because I know it, this will happen. Whereas in the aeroplanes these days, the young fellow can just go wang and the system will say, sorry, I'm not going to give you this. This is what you're going Yeah, do. okay. So, but, so therefore, what I believe is that the skill, the skill yeah. set was exemplary when yes. flying those kinds of jets. Yeah. A different sort of skill set, a different sort of skill set. I'll give set. you an analogy. The young fellows flying the F-35 today who've lived up, live with computers and games, their eye-hand coordination and their ability to pick up information all over the place from little screens and things like that, it is far greater than I ever had. Right? I look at what they do today and I say, good heavens above, how in the hell could they do it? They probably look at me and say, how in the hell did you fly a sabre with all that basic stuff there? Yeah. So the skill set is different. Very much so. But, but in both cases, then and now, yeah. it has to be top-notch before you can to, actually succeed. That's right, yeah. So... You're involved at Butterworth and you're involved in the Indonesian confrontation and this is in the early 60s and in the early 60s Australia also committed to go to Vietnam in figure 1962. So what was your transmission from Indonesian confrontation into CETO and Vietnam? How did that occur and what did it involve? Well CETO was involved with uh, Australia contributed um, six sabres up in Newbon in Thailand and that was in 1962. Uh, I did my first tour up in Newbon in early 64 
and it was a very rudimentary sort of place, very basic airfield. There were only 160 Australians, 160 Americans there. And um, the missions we could fly were very limited because there were no weapons work we could do up there. It was mainly the air defence of Thailand. Mm. And uh, we were on alert, but it was not sitting on the end of the runway, put it that way. <coughs> and, uh, but Yuban was very interesting. Um, and that lasted for six years. But it also morphed into a support of the Vietnam War because in, May, in April 65, when uh, the Americans reacted to the Gulf of Tonkin incident in August 64, um, they built that base up. And there was a squadron of Phantoms came in there in April 64, the 45th TAC Fighter Squadron, and the whole place transformed. Completely, and you were still there when yeah, when yeah. that happened. Yeah, we uh, we did a lot of work with them. Actually, there was most of the guys who came there at that stage only had about sixty hours on the Phantom. And they were going up north, and they they didn't lose any initially, but uh, they were a bit worried about the MiG threat. And we had a guy in the squadron who was a fellow named Mick Feiss, who was an absolutely brilliant air-to-air -air tactician and fighter combat instructor, and he was asked to give a brief, which he did to the forty-fifth squadron mm. on everything to do with manoeuvring because the Sabre was very similar to the MiG-17, which was their threat up north. Yep. And they were very, very thankful for that. And we also, when they came back from their missions up north, we'd do some intercepts, the radar people would follow them. We used to do some two versus two and four versus two yeah. versus four. See, this is where my uh, awareness or knowledge is now quite faulty. I was under the impression that 5 Squadron and 9 Squadron, the helicopters, were the main component of RAAF activity within Vietnam, but you're saying that Australians were actually in fighter jets as well. Is that a correct assumption? It is correct, but we weren't involved in the Vietnam War at that stage. Right. It was in a sort of a peripheral role. You, you've forgotten also the Caribous in, in yes. 35, but, uh, but yeah. nevertheless. And the Canberra. Yeah, yeah. and the Canberras as well. But we... Um, Initially, we played, I, I guess, a support role to the, the US Air Force that was based in Newbon because we helped train them, I guess you could say, the way in a, in a roundabout way. And that's been recognised by General Robin Olds and his book and everybody else who's been up there. Good. Yeah. Um, now, I, I, in looking at your background, I know you had quite an experience or you enjoyed the F-45 or the Phantom. Yep. Why? What's so special about... What was so special about the Phantom? Well, I guess the Phantom was a... I'd flown the F-111 before I got onto the Phantom. Really? Yeah, because I was on the first lot that went over for the F-111 in 1968. We did all our training and then came back because of the decision to hold until the wing carry-through box issue had been solved five years later. And... Um, the Fraser Laird agreement to lease 24 Phantoms and I was picked because most of us were still waiting around and I was one of the, the lucky fellows to go over there and we did our training MacDill and we flew the Phantoms home and uh, the longest leg was from Hawaii to Guam for seven and a half hours strapped in an ejection seat which is <laughs> not exactly what I'd call pleasurable but anyway <laughs> most of which was sitting on the tanker's wing you know in cloud yeah but um no, the Phantom was a fascinating aeroplane. We did a 35-hour conversion on it, and that involved day, night, all the weapons work, refueling day and night, 
and then we're on our own, say, okay, you, there's your aeroplanes, you fly in the back from St. Louis. So, so is this like getting out of a Holden into oh, a Mercedes? Very much so. Oh, more a Maserati. Well, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms of capability and speed, manoeuvrability, um, phenomenal. Can really you recount was. your first flight in a Phantom? Yeah. What you remember? Yeah, it was just, it was the thrust on takeoff. Um, the F-111 was good, but it was a bigger aeroplane. But the, the F-4 really accelerated, and you can turn the thing. In those days, it was very, very good for turning. But also the, the crew coordination between the back seat and the front seat, because it was a weapon system. Yeah, You couldn't have do it by yourself, because the nav in the back, he was controlling all the weapons gear, and that was excellent. It was a really good team break. And... I might say, as many of the pundits have said, uh, had we not had the Phantoms for those two or three years, the development of our capability with the F-111 would have been a lot slower. Why was that? Well, most of the crews that we had on the Phantoms, quite a lot of them went straight on the F-111s. So they had all the ability and all the experience that we'd gained over the three years on maritime strike, low-level strike, we built up techniques and things like that, and they were migrated to the F-111. The Phantom, as opposed to the F-111, the F-111 is, is a, a fighter bomber. Mm. The Phantom wasn't, was it, or was it well, a, a, almost one of those? Well, the, fa- the Phantom was a fighter bomber, both roles. Okay. Uh, whereas okay. the F-111 was more the, the bomber side, but uh, rather than the fight, more a strike aircraft. Yeah. Was the delay in... The acquisition of F-111s because in Vietnam when the Americans were flying the F-111s they had problems with the F-111 and they had to sort them out? No, it all came down to the uh, the structure of the, the wing carry-through box which joined the wings. The F-111 was one of the first aeroplanes that was built that all the systems worked and the airframe let it down. Whereas most of the other aircraft you found the airframe was quite good and the, the systems and all the ones and zeros in the computers let it down, but the 111 was a bit different. And but who it, fixed that problem, the Americans? The Americans, also our people in the aeronautical research laboratories down in Melbourne played a big role in that. Uh, we really did. So no doubt USAF would be thankful to what we did in oh. helping perfect that particular aircraft. I, I, I don't think that's recognised very much in the American circles, but yes. Okay. Um, did you spend a number of years with the Phantoms before you got into the F-111? Is that what happened, or yeah, was there I, a short... I, uh, I, I was lucky enough to stay the end. I was the CO-1 squadron at the end of the Phantoms so we, because of changes. and 11 went home after two years and we kept the other 12 for another year so that... Uh, kept them where? In Australia? And, and in Amberley. Part, Amberley of the, right. part of the agreement was we'd, we'd lease them for three years, 12 would go back after two and then another 12 after three. They were attrition aeroplanes to the Americans. They didn't really need them, put it that way, okay. but they went back and th- later on they were all changed into uh, different models, uh, G models. So... When you went to the United States, that would have been the late 60s? Uh, this no, was to train was on the F-11s, F-111s? Yeah, that was early March 1968. Right, okay. So you, you've been flying the Phantoms. No, no, no. That, that which, which comes first? <laughs> okay, well, there were two lots. One, the F-111 was in March 68. Right. Trained, and then we didn't get them. And then we went back in, in when was it, June 1970 to pick up the Phantoms, and we flew those to the end of 19. 19- 73, uh, mid-73, when the F-111s arrived. Okay, so there's a, an around about a five-year wait between, yeah, yeah. between and getting. That's so right. 
you, did you were you involved in the delivery? No, none of the F-111s. No, I was posted off to uh, a ground job and then staff college before I came back. Must have been disappointing. <laughs> well, it was. You don't get to go and pick up the F-111s? I guess it was, yeah. Um, it was just one of those things that happens in your career. You know, you've got very little control over it. Um, I'd just been promoted to squadron leader and they had an all the flight commander, so I was peddled off to Air Force office. But I had a good job down there. I was the project manager for the CT4. And uh, for a brand new squadron leader in those days to pick up a project from just selection to delivery, that, that was, I tell you what, I learned a hell of a lot in those two and a half years. I've got to ask, I mean, I, I won't ask you about your role as an Air Vice Marshal yet, but, but as an Air Vice Marshal, you will be able to probably answer the question. This whole process, you just said you were posted too and you were posted there, you were posted somewhere else. This whole process of posting within the Royal Australian Air Force, what's the logic behind that? I mean, if you're a good fighter pilot, I would assume that's where you belong as a fighter pilot, but you end up somewhere else doing something else. What's the logic behind it? Well, I, I guess it's building experience. If you fly fighters right through till you know, the day you drop, you're, you're really good at one job. You're like an academic, in other words. You know when you meet an academic and they're really good, they're narrow-minded, they don't think outside the box, they haven't got any ideas what happens outside flying. I think the Air Force and most of the services' philosophy is take somebody, do their basic training, build their experience up. When they've got some good experience, take them aside, do some staff training, put them into a staff job, broaden their outlook on whole things, on management, how to control things, put them back in squadron command so they learn a little bit more about command and other parts of the service. And then so right up till you get to the top where you've got a good broad understanding of what goes on. So you understand if there's a problem with the training, you yeah. can you can identify that problem and do something about it. There's a, there's a problem with, with, a, with a particular type of plane, you can identify the problem and do something about it. Is that multitasking skill is that what's the well, philosophy behind it you can't solve the problem but you know where to go right you know what right. i mean i mean if it's something if i was in a high level of things like that and there's a problem arose with the c-130 i'm not a c-130 expert but i know where to go i know where the engineers work i know who the supply people are and, and also the manufacturer so mm. you've got a broad understanding and you can bring it all together in the management system mm. What was your time like in, and why were you in Greece and Turkey? In Greece and Turkey? The only time I've been in Greece and Turkey is on a cruise ship after I retired. Well, there you go. Well, that's your experience <laughs> in Greece and Turkey. How did you get into the, what was your steps leading into the F-111? Um, I had finished staff college and uh, I came back and did complete conversion again. You had to re, uh, we put redo it, it. Yeah, yeah, redo the whole thing because it'd been since '68 till '77, been about eight years. So whilst the the knowledge was there, it was a bit rusty and dusty, and it had to be uh, polished off a little bit. And then I did a about a year on the uh, the staff at the headquarters, and then I was commander of Six Squadron, which was the training squadron and half operational, half mm. training. We got the recce birds as well. You're, I'll jump straight to it because I'm, I'm fascinated by it. In, in an F-111, you're in the cockpit and I'm in a sabre and I'm in the cockpit. If I have a problem with a sabre and I have to eject, I eject. Mm -hmm. Bang, I'm out. But if I'm in an F-111 and I've got to eject, it's not just me, it's the entire cockpit. That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, uh, now, you ejected 
from an F-111. T- t- relate that story to us. Well, Pete Crowder and I did, yes, we ejected. Well, a <laughs> couple was, of you. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a decision. The captain of the aeroplane always Were sits you? in the left hand Yeah, but the captain always sits in the left-hand seat. We fly with the pilot and the nav. Okay. And um, it, it's your decision, but... If I'm incapacitated, he has the capability to do it as well, put it that way. But it's um, it's not a decision you take lightly, and you, you don't consider the dollars and cents. It's more of a safety aspect before you actually go. In in our case, there was a fire, and there was a we'd been told the aeroplane was on fire, and we heard a hell of a bang down the back, which was an explosion, which we found out later was the. Ex- main undercarriage piston which was around about nine inches exploding and we said okay that's good so we jumped out and pulled the handle and I I beat Peter to it by 0.3 of a second. (laughs) So was it the instruments that indicated to you in the first instance there was a problem or was it the sound of the explosion which came first? Well it it was a slow build-up because we were doing an attack on a ship and we were down low level at about 100 feet doing about... You better tell us where this was. Okay. It was was off the Coromandel Peninsula to the east of Auckland. Right. Near New Zealand. Okay. Doing an attack on a Kiwi Navy ship and we were about 100 feet doing about 620 knots and we were coming in to do what we call a pop-up delivery. And we got a wheel wheel hot light, which means there's something hot where the undercarriage is. And the bowl face or emergency reaction to that is to slow down, open the, the, the undercarriage door, which is also your speed brake. So I just pulled it out of burner and slammed the wings forward. As soon as we got down, put the speed brake out at 600, which is the maximum speed. And as soon as the, we got to about 350, it was a bit high, and then I put the gear down and um, the light stayed on which normally it goes out because when you evacuate the actual wheel wheel area the temperature goes down but this had stayed on it stayed on for about half an hour anyway there's a few other aspects to it and then we headed back i had a a wingman who came back and joined me and he said yeah it's looking or doesn't look too bad we were going to fenuapai which was the kiwi base just north of auckland and so you, you're back over land by this stage? No, we're still over the water, still over heading the water. back towards Auckland. Why did the landing gear go down at that stage? Was that to slow the plane? or No, to that's, that's because we're the wheel well hot light. It, it's okay. hot in the wheel well, so you've got to get some cold air in there. Okay. So you put the gear down, and it's a big, big boxy area in the middle of the fuselage. And there was no... There was a hook wire at um, Fenuapai, but it was... The aircraft weight of ours was over, over. we would have busted it. So we mm. thought, well, we'll go for the long one over towards uh, Auckland International at Mangri. And in the meantime, there were a couple of other indications came up and uh, we dumped a bit of fuel and then Herbie was sitting on the wing. He said, you better, you better get out of there. You've got a big fire coming out of the wheel well underneath the aeroplane. Which he could see. He could see, yeah. And... We said, all right, so I put out a mayday call and said we're going to eject and we're still going towards Auckland and and then we heard this big bang down the back. But all the instruments, we had a few indications everything was going quite normally until that, until when we heard the big bang, all the instruments on them, the oil hot lights and all the Hmm. other things started going bang. The aircraft was still flying all right, but uh, it wasn't worth staying. And we jumped out and you could when the... Are you still over water? Yep, still yep. over water, only about 2,500 feet, and uh, the 
when the parachute came out and was sitting there in the module, you could see the aeroplane going down towards the water with flames belching out of the back of it. So mm. it was probably a good decision. Was that plane ever recovered to determine the problem? Or? Yeah, yeah, they did. They dug it all out of the water. It's only about 160 feet deep off Wahiki Island, and um, they got a contractor and was taken back to Amberley, and they found that there was a, a, a break in the what's called the 15th stage bleed airline, which the temperature's around about 1500 degrees. And was that a problem that, because they found the problem, that they could then address in the rest of the F-111 yeah, fleet? Yeah, all, all the others were checked, but they didn't find anything, but it was probably just a, an anomaly in that, that one, whether it was a bracket, a, a, a bracket that had let go, whether it had been a crack in the pipe or something like that, they couldn't ascertain. The other thing they didn't ascertain was the course of ignition. You know, fires don't start without a spark or something like mm. that, but they could never, they find, could never that, find that never problem. They could never find that, no. Was there such a thing as a black box in, in the F-111? No. no. So no. that's no. just only yep. 21st century planes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like um, so watching the flames coming from the aircraft, the aircraft could never really have made it to land. No. 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 Matter of fact, I was speaking to an ARL, uh, aeronautic research guy, who did all the... the, the metal work when they got the wreck back and he said you know the undercarriage would have collapsed if you landed anyway because he, oh, okay. he, he had a look at all the metal drips and he said there was molten metal in the actual wheel well before you put the gear down yeah so that plane would not really probably no. would have exploded before you even made it to land one would assume well it would have yes yeah probably you yeah. did the right thing now go back to the whole cockpit coming off mm -hmm. what's the, that's quite amazing so the entire cockpit and all the instrumentations all come out yep the whole whole shebang and it goes up as a 27,000 pound thrust motor and you get a um, it, it's not a great bang like an ejection seat it's a like a bit of a whoosh it goes up and then you get that you're feeling you're right over on your back which you're not that's a somatographic illusion and uh, and then you feel the parachute come out and you look up and you see this big 64-foot parachute, thank God it's there. <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's this gadook, and you, 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 it, it repositions that there's a hole on the top of the windscreen. Let's go to one down the bottom to balance it. And then we were coming down, and I could see the aeroplane belching smoke, and I, I said to Pete, number three, because we'd lost two before, and he said, yeah. And I said, are you, are you okay? And he said, I've got a pain between the shoulders. And I said, yes, I have too. And uh, so anyway... When we landed, the water was flat, and uh, it went probably 30 feet underwater, I'd say, and it all got very dark and then bubbled up. Bubbled up the top, again. Then bubbled up the top and set So is the, is the cockpit still pressurised? Oh, oh, no, not pressurised. It's all sealed at this okay, stage. Okay, right. So and the then, air quality in that cockpit... Oh, it's OK, yeah. yeah. And then you can put, pull the self-writing bags, and there's about three handles you pulled, and disconnects the parachute and it bobs up and just sits in the uh, thing. And the, then what was the rescue process like? Because you didn't row back to the shore, that's for no, sure. No, it's quite funny because there was a guy... <laughs> um, coming down, we could see a, uh, a trawl heading towards us and also a little tinny. Anyway, we in the water, we opened the, the canopies and everything looked up and this tinny came up with two fellas in it. Bruce McDonald, his name was from Papatoito, I'll never forget that, and his father was about 70, and their eyes were as big as saucers. <laughs> and we said, can, can we hop in with you? He said, oh, yeah. So we hopped into his little tinny, and um, 
shut the canopy and we said to the trawler guy, could you just tow this very slowly over to the island so that they can recover it? He said, sure. And uh, he said, my partner and I will tow it for you. And anyway, we hopped into the tinny and then the, uh, the, hel the New, Zealand, New Zealand helicopter came over and picked us up and took us back. Out of the tinny or off the out trawler? Of the tinny, out of the tinny. Out of the, out of the tinny. Oh, back to Fanuapai. And it was quite funny because when we got to Fanuapai, um, I said, well, you better take us down to medical. Oh, all right. So they took us down to medical. We said, where's the doctor? Well, they said, well, the doctor stood down. You've ejected. <laughs> There's no more danger. And I thought, <laughs> Jeez. So they, they recalled him and we, we, we it was the first ejection in New Zealand, you see. Really? Yeah, so we had to explain to him about the possibility of back damage or, or spinal damage and he arranged for us to be taken into Auckland Hospital to have uh, so, x-rays. Again, back to your role as Air Vice Marshal, in the whole process of, a, of ejection from any aircraft, was research ever done as to what damage was likely or could have oh, been yeah. or did do to, Tell us about the whole process of ejection. Well, there's two types of ejection. One is in the ejection seat in most fighter aircraft yep. or in training aeroplanes these days where there's a cartridge in the back and nowadays there's a cartridge feeding into a rocket where there's a hell of a bang to get you out. There's quite a possibility of damage to the lumbar spine, the lower spine. Right. right? In today's aircraft. Well, all, all, all aircraft, all aircraft yeah, like okay. that because the, the body sits in a seat and all of a sudden there's a, a great big Im, uh, force imparted and you get a kick in the backside, which is vertical up the spine and uh, more disc problems down the lumbar area. Um, ours was a little bit different than the 111 because it's a slow acceleration with the rocket motor and ours was actually on landing because... Um, in their brilliance, the Americans had prescribed a, a landing thing where you put your arms over your, grabbed your shoulder blade mm. and pushed to hold your head back. Well, when you're landing in water or anywhere on a flat surface, um, that only, because your head is quite heavy, and mm. it'll flick forward regardless of what you're doing. Because a body in motion, which is to continue in motion. Well, especially if you've got your arms holding your head up like yeah. this because you've got all that weight up the top. And the other thing was that um, one of my, I think my, I had had a tear in the muscle because one of the sh shoulder um, straps had gone too far and yeah. ripped, ripped yeah. muscle. But nevertheless, but the ejection side on landing, the F-111 hits at uh, 35. 35 feet a second, which is like jumping off a cliff, you know what I mean, in a yeah. chair. Yeah. And it's the same in a normal parachute. But our problem was that we had um, thoracic damage. We had cracks in the, the front edge of the spine from, from the head going forward. And mm. I, I rewrote the things and we had an injection about six months later and one of the guys got out okay, no problems. Yeah, so the, when you think about it, uh, is there training for ejections? I mean, is that part of the discipline of being a... A pilot? No, there was. There was a trainer down at Point Cook that everybody had to sit in. You'd sit in the seat and pull the blind and go up like that, but then they found that the, the possibility of damage to the back um, was too high, was too risky, put it that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they stopped. But no, no, you, you really can't simulate. You can go through the drills, in other words, getting ready and what, what handles to pull, what sure, blinds sure. to pull, but not the actual form. So no. you really only want to do it in real life when there's a real life threat. And, and you really want to know yeah, what to do. You want to, to stay do. alive. <laughs> yeah, okay. Mm. The CT4 air trainer. Mm. Um, 
tell us about your experience with that and what was what was involved. The Windjill had served the Artiblav very, very well. It was a tail dragger aeroplane. Everybody loved it. Big aeroplane, 1,850 horsepower. And all the old school people said, yes, you really need that before you go on the jets. And the CT4 had been picked before I got there. It was a lighter aeroplane, but it met the specifications drawn up by the air staff. They said, this is what we need. This is the crimes. It, it wasn't the Victor Air Tour that was designed in Australia. It was totally designed in New Zealand by a fellow named Pat Monk who strengthened the aeroplane. Anyway, it was, it was a good aeroplane, good little aeroplane, and it's still flying around today. Mm. And it was used to the ADF trainer right up till 2000 and 2012, I think it was, something like that. So it's just something. But it was quite funny because all the, the people in the windshield world didn't like this idea of a, a light aircraft. You know, we'll, we'll have people get through it they'll fly it easily and then they'll be scrubbed on jets which will be more expensive and I said no 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 that way it's a, it's not an easy aeroplane to fly but it'll teach people anyway as it turned out we were right but one of the the two issues were that at Point Cook the we had a, a CFI who, who was around about five foot one and we had the CFI at sail who was about seven foot one <laughs> and the aeroplane was designed as per the rules as the 95 percentile man because one of these was 140 percent the other one was 30 percent and they kept saying no it won't work and won't work and things like that anyway but it did, it and, did. It, and the people who flew it enjoyed it and the product that it produced to go to the Mackey was was first class yeah I I don't want to dwell on the F-111, but I, I've read in your bio, you talk about an F-111 and an RF-111. What's yeah. the difference? Well, we bought the F-111, which is the straight strike aircraft. Yep. The Americans had an idea of having a reconnaissance version, which, in other words, you wouldn't have in the, the actual Bombay area, which they, you have reconnaissance gear in it, and that enables you to take your strike aircraft in, and then as soon as they've gone through, the reconnaissance people go in, take get all the photographs, call yep. the bomb damage assessment, come back and the intellos can then sit down and analyse what's been done or what's been achieved or what hasn't been achieved. Sure. Now, we were very interested in the reconnaissance version and we're in, initially back in the early 60s, we were keen on getting them, but it sort of waned with all the problems that came up with the F-111 and the yep. wing. And then... Because we didn't have any reconnaissance capability after the Canberra went, and that had been sort of modified to, mm. to meet that requirement, we did a project um, which, with uh, Fort Worth at, at General Dynamics, and we modified four aeroplanes and turned them into reconnaissance aeroplanes, put infrared line scan cameras and things like that in the weapons bay. And uh, we could still carry weapons on the aeroplane, but nothing in the bay didn't have anything okay. going. But yeah, so we had four of those to the end. Yeah. Was this they assigned to your squadron? Yeah, we picked them initially. There was there was one done in the America, completely modified, and we flew it home. The other four were modified at Amberley at Three Aircraft Depot, and then they were introduced to Six Squadron and RCO, and we had a thing called the photographic. PPIF, uh, Precision Photographic Interpretation Facility, okay. where we had all the gear and all the specialists who could had their uh, gear to watch, look at the so maps. You were the commander of Six Squadron at this point, yeah, and yeah. therefore responsible, I suppose, for the 
introduction of this this craft into your your squadron. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was interesting because we had guys who had done exchange tours in the states. Mm. Like most capabilities, when you introduce something in the air force in the planning phases, you try and get people in overseas force, be in the RAF or the USAF, who have that capability to go over there, pick up the experience, use it, come back, so that when we introduce it. We've got somebody there with the experience, so we don't start out from scratch. Understand. Yeah. Understand. And it's the same with F-35. That was yeah. done as well. Well, actually, you are you go back to the United States as the Hornet project manager, I believe. Yeah. I, after um, Richmond, um, I was pick, picked up, I guess, to be the... Um, the title was the Senior National Representative of Australia on the Hornet Project in the States. I worked for the project director back in Canberra, but I had about 160 staff all around the States. We had an office in, uh, in Washington, and we had people around all the contractors, mostly at St. Louis, where the aircraft were built, but also the subcontractors who were building simulators and things like that. So we had to go that, sit down with those people, make sure they were meeting the contractor. Mm. If they weren't, give them a kick in the boot, boot in the backside and stuff like that. Yeah. So... What was therefore your response? How responsible were you then for getting the Hornet introduced into the Royal Australian oh, Air Force? I, no, I, I would I wouldn't say responsible because it's a big team effort. Um, years ago, when you look at the CT4, you had about four or five people who were involved in the, the in the aircraft. That's in the 60s, right? In the early sorry, in the early 70s. 70s. Now, move forward to the uh, to the late 80s you've got a whole morph organization called the dare i say the material empire and yeah, you've got dave without being modest you were the project manager for the hornet were you yeah not? but but only for a while only for three years you see it started i mean the, the people who'd been involved in the testing and the flying and the assessment of the aeroplane, yep, that's yep. good, yep. You've got the grocers who actually sit down, do the analyses of which what's required to maintain the aeroplane. You've got the engineers working hand in glove with them. Mm. And you've got somebody sitting <coughs> over the top saying exactly, well, have we got it all together? And that, that's the point I was raising earlier on about building experience. Of course, of course, it makes sense. So you really can't say that you were responsible. I, I wouldn't accept that. Okay, but yeah. you were... <laughs> We won't dwell on that, Dave. <laughs> While you're in the United States, I believe you also worked in the U.S. Navy aircraft development. What what did that mean? We uh, the, the, we were a part of well, I, we were an Australian thing, but we were built, billeted, put it that way, with within the um, the U.S. Navy's. Uh, they had a hell of a lot of people there looking after all the naval aeroplanes. Yep. And we were working with one particular guy named John Lockhart, who was the project money manager aircraft 265. An American. He an American. Yep. So I worked hand in glove with John. I've had a problem. I'd go to see him and he'd say, okay, well, this is what we're doing. We'll have a talk about it. And then we'd go and see the contractor because our aeroplanes were built to their standard. Exactly the same, sure. apart from five modifications we put in. We learned the lesson years ago of specifying our aeroplanes, what we want for Australian circumstances. That's great, but it costs you the earth and it costs you downstream in terms of specialised spares and things like that. So when we bought the F-18, we sort of set the benchmark and said five mods only. That's all. That's all we put in it. To the, today, where we get things like the Growler, 
the F-35 and things like that, they're exactly the same because the software costs... Are astronomical. Are astronomical. I'll give you a good example. The Chief of the Air Force, Air Marshal Ray Fennell, came over when I was over in Washington and I said, sir, there's one thing you'll have to put into the budget for the future and that's upgrades to the software. And he said, all right, give me an example. And I said, well, all right, the latest upgrade to the Hornet software cost $30 million. That was just to do all the the, uh, the work developing it, analysis, the V&V, which they call verification, validation. Yeah. And they'd done that. They'd done all the testing, dropped all the weapons. And what they found on one of the tests was the Sparrow missile wouldn't fire above 30,000 feet between heading of 290 and 300. Now, that's the level to which it goes. And he said, mm, well, all right. And we eventually did our own software. We we paid and, and built and built our own software capability. But very expensive game. Yep. Okay. Uh, um, I want to. You you you're the base. You're at. You're the CEO at Base Squadron at Richmond, mm-hmm. and you've said that this was perhaps your most satisfying job. I just want to explore with you, if you don't mind, the things you learned that maybe you didn't know before or didn't really realise you knew before. You learned more about command and management of people and organisation than you had anywhere else. Would that be true? Very much so. Why? Why was it there that suddenly you learnt that? I was, was, I was posted there in um, straight off Joint Services Staff College and it was then the biggest unit in the Air Force. We had 800 people. We subsequently carved off a few and formed a couple of other units, but you had everybody from the cooks and bottle washers to the drivers to the suppliers and every, you had the complete gamut of the Air Force. In, in essence, what I my job was more like the mayor of, of a little town, providing a service to all the squadrons on the base. Yep. And I worked for a guy named uh, Air Commodore Tex Watson, who was the AC, a fighter pilot who I knew for years, but he was an absolutely magnificent person. And he was good. He'd let me have my hand, let me do what I want. If I crossed him, he'd give me a kick in the backside, which was well worth it. But learning how everybody thinks, because the way I was taught, the way I thought, was somewhat total, totally different to the way the drivers attach their job and things like that and handing out the discipline you know poor some fella came in and he pinched this or he did this or he bashed mm. this bloke and you, you you run across all those sorts of incidents and <coughs> dare I say things that people get up to yeah and, and you you dipped in the big tank put it that way and you, you dipped in the, the big tank of life rather than being this protected fighter squadron type environment or staff job sure. environment and I found that fascinating because you really had to go back to square one you had to think and say god how are we, we going to solve this thing you get your specialists in sit down with them say hey how do we do this what are we going to do here now what do you think and they'd come up with some ideas and say alright that sounds good how about we merge this one and do it and for a good example we um, <coughs> there was a local the local mayor used to be the OC of the base, and he uh, he had the local fair on, you know, for for yep. Windsor. And he said he rang me up and he said um, I rang Tex up and he said, look, how about the Air Force put a float in our parade? And Tex said to me, put a float in the parade, yes sir. So I 
I sat down with a couple of guys. We uh, we dressed a semi-trailer up, and uh, we had banners all around the side saying, "There's more to the Air Force than flying." And we had a little section for everyone in base squad: the doctors, the nurses, the things like that. The whole works, and we won the, We won it. But of it course, was, naturally, but, the mayor but, was a former Air Force. Anyway, sorry, um, no, it wasn't a judge, <laughs> but it was a good example of showing to others what's in the, the Air Force. The diversity of the Royal Australian Air yeah, Force. Yeah. yeah, of the organisation, because an organisation just doesn't exist at the people at the top and all the shiny bits. There's a hell of a lot of work goes underneath uh, to, to get it all going. Okay, so let's... You, you're Air Vice Marshal uh, until you retired in 1998. Suddenly, you're a pretty important figure in the Royal Australian Air Force. How important did you discover it was that, like you learned a lot about management and command and organisation when you were CO of Base Squadron Richmond, how important is that the Air Vice Marshal has more than that, more knowledge than just the command and management and organisation, that it goes beyond it? They have to see, like they're sitting Zeus on the mountain and they can see everything. How important is that? Well, I, I think you might be overstating it a little bit because we're all human and we only build our experience as we go. And one of the things we do with people in the service is we put them through staff colleges, which we expose them to all these sorts of strategic thinking exercises, practical problems you may run across, command issues and things mm. like that. It's like a potpourri and it's stirred around. You build up that experience. You really don't know you've got it until you, you're there and you have to do it. Um, I was lucky because Les Fisher was the, the chief. We, he took over the chief and I took his job. And he was... I, I love working for Les because he's a very easy guy to get along with. And he would seek my opinion. I'd seek his opinion. Mm. We had a good teamwork going. And, and working with all the other senior commanders as well. And it was, it was quite interesting. But... It's it's not something that uh, is innate, and it's something that's there. It's something you develop over the years. Yep. See, the various people I've spoken to over these series of podcasts for the Royal Australian Air Force, when they're learning to be a pilot, some make it and some don't. Yeah. Surely that, and you've said it yourself, we're all human. Surely then when you get to the rank of Air Vice Marshal or Chief of the Air Force, Air Marshal, the boss. There must be some, and I'm not asking you to be specific, I'm just generalising here, there must be some who are not suited for that level of leadership because that, to me, from outside looking in, it must require a special sort of person to make it, firstly, to that level. And there must be some duds. Well... It's hard to say there must be some duds. Yes, there are. And don't forget that we all pick our successors, so I can't say what the people thought who picked me. Yeah. I'm not saying you're nevertheless, a dud. Nevertheless, no, no. <laughs> I know what you're getting at. But one of the things at that level is the ability to negotiate and listen to people. Yeah. Um, because in the... Air Force Office and uh, Department of Defence, it's just not Air Force. You're really working with the Central, you're working with the civilians and they are very, very difficult to work with sometimes mm. in seeing things because they look through a different prism to the one you've been used to. Mm. So you have to have those negotiating skills to sit down and explain your case 
and persevere. If you don't win first, you've got to go back, build your case up and go and sure, do it again. Sure. i give you a good example. The AWNC, which we do now have in two squad on the, the E7, that was in its formation stages and things like that. And we'd been working for years and years trying to get that through the, the committee system. Mm. And uh, we had the final one, it was probably around about 98, 97, early 97. And I went over as the Defence Force Development Committee. And I was the Air Force rep on them. And that committee met for nine hours. Nine hours we went through everything. I'm sure we went through every nut and bolt on that bloody design. And we finally came out. And I remember it was at seven o'clock at night. I rang the chief. He was still waiting in his office. And I said, we've got it. Now, that's not me personally. That's not my ability personally. But it's the job. It's the things that's required of you. You've got to persevere. You've got to use your experience. You've sure, got to use your sure. knowledge. All the information that's given to you, you've got to use. You've got to analyse and things like that. But so that's come about because of the diversity of training that, that yeah. every individual in the RAAF goes e through. Exactly. You know, I'd had six years as an Air Commodore. I'd three years command at Amberley and I'd three years down in the Air Force office doing the similar sort of thing at a lower level. Sure. So it's a, it's a gradual experience increase. Dave, two final questions. You said you started in the ATC, 13-year-old mm -hmm. at school, yep. and you ended up, before you retired, as Air Vice Marshal. So the two questions are, what is your best memory from your days at school as in the ATC? And secondly and lastly, what are you most proud of in what you achieved as an Air Vice Marshal? They're the final two questions. Okay, the first one, a humorous thing is coming home in the bus with your rifle as a cadet. I don't think you can ever imagine that happening today, but nevertheless, I guess for getting a flying scholarship and going solo, um, that would be my certain pride and my achievement in the Air Training Corps. Um, well, my best time in the Air Force, um, very hard to say. I, what are you most proud of that you were in your role as Air Vice Marshal? Oh, I had three years in the job and I didn't, uh, didn't fail, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good memory. Dave. It's very hard to say. You know, no. There's lots of little things to do. There's some people who would say, yes, I built that mountain. Sure. But, but all I could say is I contributed to that mountain. Okay. Well, you certainly contributed to ejection process. You contributed to bringing in the F-111 and the, and the Hornets. And all, you've, you've achieved a lot in your career. So, Dave, on behalf of everybody who knows you, and has worked with you and under you. Thank you for your service to the Royal Australian Air Force and thank you for your service to Australia as a member of the Royal Australian Air Force. Thank you, sir. It was good fun. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition 
of Perambua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.